You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. And if you don't know it, I have a cold, so I sound a little weird, but it's me. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Office and Professional Employees Local 277 and IBEW Locals 1464. OPIU Local 277 represents over 10,000 professionals working in various sectors across the United States and New Zealand. Local 277 includes clerical and technical employees in aircraft manufacturing, banking and the insurance industries, as well as insurance agents, booksellers, nonprofit employees, administrative assistants, and many of the clerical employees in our local unions. And IBW Local 1464 is a labor union that represents nearly 800 workers in Missouri and Kansas, primarily utility workers and some in manufacturing. We strive to improve the lives of working people when your power goes out. Our members turn it back on. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, we'll talk about organizing and labor's future, first with a worker at KCPT, the bridge, and Flatland in Kansas City. Then with former ILWU organizing director Pete Olney, who in and with Rand Wilson, both of whom wrote an article in April called Can Labor Seize the Movement Moment? And it looks like they are. And then with the New Yorker writer Eleni Shermer, who thinks labor guru Jane McAlevey has transformed the labor movement. In the news, we'll spend it with Cami Coons who works at KCPT, they've just filed for union recognition. Our feature at the end of the show is Safety First with Mary Ario, and she'll talk about one, how the University of Missouri has launched a work zone safety center, two, the world's worst industrial disaster and who else did it affect, and three, new resources for roofing workers. Now for the news. This is the news from our side. Thursday, December 7th, 2023. I'm Judy Ansel, and with me in the studio is Cami Kuhn, who works at KCPT. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what's your big news, Cami? So our big news is that we actually filed last week, um, but we just went public uh, yesterday. I sent out the Uh press release about filing with uh, NABIT CWA to start a union for the on-air talent, producers, reporters, radio, and marketing at Kansas City PBS. Congratulations. Thank you so much. How many people are in the bargaining unit? Oh gosh, Um, I think it's about 20-ish, 25 maybe. Okay, and and what are your issues? What What made you, all those folks in those three different operations want to unionize? Yeah, so in the past year, we've had about 10 people leave the station, um, and not just 
to pursue better opportunities because they were upset with stuff and the outlook from management was just kind of that oh well if they don't like it here they can leave um and a lot of those positions weren't replaced we went from having four reporters to having two reporters um full-time staff so those were a lot of the issues that we had is just the the short staffing and then kind of this attitude of like oh well sorry that's just kind of how it how it tumbles uh we don't have money for that but we have money for other things besides supporting those areas are are wages a big issue i mean wages are always an issue in in media but i think that Primarily, we want to continue making this a place that we want to work at because we are so passionate about the platform that Kansas City PBS has to really serve this community. Um, and we're, we were really fed up with seeing people who were really talented just leaving because they weren't getting treated the right way and they weren't having the opportunities to grow in the way that's, that they wanted to. Um, and for people who don't recognize KCPT, that's Channel 19, folks. Uh, but they have a lot of other operations too, don't they? Yeah, so Kansas City PBS, um, formerly known as KCPT, um, encompasses the, the TV station Channel 19, 90.9 The Bridge, which is the NPR music station here in Kansas City, and Flatland, which is our digital news site, which is primarily what I work for. What do you do? So I'm a rural affairs reporter, um, also through Report for America. Um, and so I report on the communities kind of surrounding the Kansas City metro area. So is it a lot farm stuff or what? Yeah, I do a lot of ag reporting. That's my favorite. Really? Mm -hmm. Are you an ag person by background? Um, not me personally. Several generations back down in uh, southwest Kansas. Really? So you know Kansas pretty well? Are you, uh, are you from Kansas? Yeah, I uh, have a background in rural Kansas and also I went to high school and grew up for the most part in the Lake of the Ozarks area so I have a, a good understanding of rural on both sides. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay and so have um, so you you're the spokesperson along with one other person right? Yeah myself and Cody Boston. Okay um, have you guys had anybody talk back to you from management or anything like that? Um, no, management has been honestly pretty passive. When we handed in the letter, it was pretty much, they seemed pretty on board, uh, just kind of like, okay, well, we're going to talk with our lawyers, see what we want to do, situation. And so we thought, all right, cool. We really thought we were going to get voluntary recognition. Okay, voluntary recognition, by the way, is when the people form a union and they ask the employer to voluntarily recognize them and negotiate uh, for a first contract with them. It's certainly allowed under labor law. However, these days almost nobody does it. it it just seems to be something that employers say no we're not you know we're not going to agree to talk to our workers as a collective unit we're going to fight them and at least we're going to make them have an election so is that what kcpt did yeah that's what it seems like and they never uh at least that we received any official word back from that um i was at the board meeting yesterday morning and they said that they wanted it to go to an election at that point, um, and then they stated that they were planned to remain neutral in the election. They're going to stay neutral. Well, that's well, what they that's said. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, KCPT. What does neutral mean to them? Um, you know, well, I had I had high hopes for that. I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, but later in the day, they passed out a uh, "What does a union mean?" FAQ sheet, and on the bottom of it, it said, "Please support Kansas City PBS and vote no." So that doesn't necessarily sound neutral in my opinion, but. Well, you mean if you're a loyal employee, you're gonna vote against the union, right? Because unions aren't good for KCPT, is that the message? That seems to be the message, very much so. Yeah, there was one thing in that you showed me um, in, in, in that statement that, um, I, I don't know, what was the gist of it that you got from that statement? There were, there were a lot of points about their definition of what unions are do you remember any of them that were uh, that caught your eye? Um, yeah, there were a lot of them. I think one of the main ones and that you pointed out um, was kind of making it seem like people didn't have a say in whether or not the union existed, and that's why they decided not to grant voluntary recognition. Right. So they kind of painted this idea that it would affect the entire station and not just a specific bargaining unit, which we have a pretty significant supermajority of support in you already. Do. Yeah. Yeah, well, many employers say we have to go to an election because we have no other way of knowing whether our workers really support a union, even though 
the workers may have presented a majority of signatures on a petition, they will automatically assume that, you know, the union held a gun to their head, and so that's why they signed it, um, which shows a real lack of trust, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, we're talking to Cami Kuhn from uh, KCPT about their affiliation with what union? It's uh, NABIT CWA, which is National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians. And who do they largely represent? Do you know? Oh gosh, there's there's people all over the place. Um, that that question kind of catches me off guard. I don't have oh, any off the top oh, of my head. Okay. <laughs> I think they are the main broadcast unit. Yes, for, for absolutely. TV, right. Yeah. Well, congratulations. We wish you luck and come back and talk to us more about what's going on there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Judy. Thanks so much. And that that concludes the news from our side. Stay tuned for for Michael Savoir talking about whether it's labor's movement moment. And it sounds like, at least for the workers at KCPT, it certainly is. Whose title is Can Labor Seize the Movement Moment? Our musical prelude was We Have Fed You All for a Thousand Years by George Mann. My guests tonight are Peter Only and Rand Wilson. Peter is a retired organizing director of the ILWU in the Bay Area. Peter has committed his life to labor and labor education for over 50 years. Rand Wilson is a labor organizer and communicator. He has served numerous unions at a variety of positions, most recently as chief of staff for SEIU, Local 888 in Boston, Mass. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the Heartland Labor Forum. Pleasure to be here, Michael. You forgot to mention that we're old friends. Well, yeah, we go back a long way, buddy, and uh, certainly happy to have both of you on. Evening, Pete. Great to to meet you, brother. I've heard your name for many, many years. Yeah, it's been many a moon, man, it's for sure. Listen, let's start out by telling our listeners, in case they don't know, what a movement moment is. Either one of you. Well, a movement moment is is a moment when uh, forces come together, people are on the move, uh, you know, doing business as usual is no longer possible. Uh, we need new approaches, we have high energy. And Rand and I uh, wrote a piece in late spring projecting that uh, we think this might be labor's movement moment. And we pointed to an interesting paradox that our density, our percent of the workforce that we represent in the private sector as unions is only 6%. And yet in still polls show people favor unions, strike activity is up, organizing activity is up. And we've just seen some dramatic labor stories over the summer and into the fall. The Teamsters did battle effectively and successfully with United Parcel Service. And the United Auto Workers just concluded a a wonderful battle with the big three automakers. So this indeed is a movement moment. Uh, I think we were right, Rand. No, no, No question in my mind. Any comments there, Rand? Climate's right. Sure. I, I, the one thing I would add to what Peter said is that <clears throat> I think the movement moment is created between an intersection 
of a tight labor market, right, where, where workers are in demand by their employers. And uh, we haven't had a situation like that for a long time. A political environment that is favorable and then <clears throat> rising expectations and um, organizations that are prepared to fight to, to meet those expectations. So it's the intersection of all three that create this kind of perfect storm of opportunity for working class uh, people to rise up. Yep, absolutely. That's what I was going to call it, man. The avalanche of labor, like in the 30s and 40s. Yep. So uh, seems like the climate and the conditions are ripe. We've, the indicators are there. Uh, do we have the strength and the resources to to uh, execute? It's a great question, Michael. Um, <clears throat> there's no question that the resources are there because <clears throat> the, what we're talking about is <clears throat> people coming together and organizing, finding common ground in the workplace that <clears throat> on the issues that they agree on. That doesn't cost anything. <clears throat> the employer pays for you to show up and to be there. So uh, the greatest resource we have is people that are brought together from a variety of backgrounds, races, ethnicities, um, geographies, come together in the workplace um, <clears throat> because they have to be there to earn a living. And that is the, the resource that is the, uh, the opportunity, doesn't cost a thing, and it's only a question of overcoming fear and <clears throat> finding the basis for coming together uh, to achieve common goals. Well, Pete, as an old organizer yourself, it, it takes more than just will, man. There's a certain amount of cash that's involved in organizing, and labor has traditionally been way down in terms of what they allocate for organizing. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. That's a great point. I mean, if you look at the aggregate treasury of the labor movement, it comes to about $35.8 billion, which makes us second only to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in terms of resources. And yet, as you've indicated, very little of that money gets spent on new organizing, probably around 5% on average among all the unions combined. So there's another element here, and that's political will and commitment. And that's why this UAW story is such a wonderful story of union reform, changing the leadership of the union, conducting a high profile dynamic national battle against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis, winning and now immediately moving to organize the non-union auto sector in this country, where there are more auto workers that are under contract with the United Auto Workers, mostly, of course, foreign, foreign companies from Japan, from Korea, from Germany, from Sweden. The UAW has now launched a high-profile campaign focused largely in the Southeast to organize these workers, and I find that extremely, ex excuse me, exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a chance to spend a little time with Shane Fain recently, and he's he's not the traditional labor union leader. Uh, what about the rest of them, Rand? Can we can we count on them in terms of pitching in and taking advantage of this movement moment? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> this week. Uh, uh, let's see, this morning, 1,100 workers went on strike in uh, Cincinnati at DHL. And tomorrow, there could be another 1,000 workers in Louisville and uh, going on strike at UPS, and then possibly uh, several hundred more in Chicago at local uh, 705 going on strike. And they're being backed by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters the new leadership at, uh, of Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman uh, there. So uh, at least there's another instance where we're seeing new leadership that's uh, ready to step up and support workers when they want to take action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just had, uh, if you guys could hear the interview, we had with uh, 
workers at a local PBS station here that have just filed for union recognition. So certainly it seems that uh, those forces are coming uh, in, in play that could allow such a, a movement moment to happen. Um, where's the spark, guys? We need a spark. We need a spark that gets the ball rolling, the avalanche started. Is it there? Well, I think we've seen a lot of sparks, Michael. Um, we've seen sparks at Amazon, the successful organizing on Staten Island. We've seen the Starbucks workers, I think, winning upwards of 300 elections at 300 separate sites around the country. And now this UPS story is a spark, inspiring the Amazon workers to up their game based on the gains that were made with uh, United Parcel Service. Uh, the UAW thing is going to reverberate around the country. Uh, so we got a lot of sparks flying. However, there is an important question of organizational resources. It's very hard for individual workers, no matter how committed they are, to take on some of these giant corporations. So it's going to have to be a wake-up call for a lot of our unions to throw down the considerable resources I just mentioned and support organizing. Rand, you know, I just recently read an article by Bill Fletcher who described labor's leadership as being at a fortress at the top of a mountain somewhere, hunkered down for battle, and the battle's down here on the ground, buddy. Can, can, can we get them out of the fortress? Well, I think that's the, uh, <clears throat> that's why the, <clears throat> it's important to have rank and file movements like TDU, like United Auto Workers for Democracy, like uh, United All Workers for, uh, Unite Essential Workers for Democracy. We're seeing these internal caucuses uh, uh, bringing together uh, <clears throat> workers at the rank and file level to push the leadership to do the right thing. Michael, you were involved in, in TDU for uh, decades. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Regardless of who's at the top of the fortress, uh, it's important to have groups like that that can hold those people accountable and push for the kind of resources that Peter's talking about that get devoted to organizing. Yep, absolutely, guys. You know, it's um, once we get uh, uh, labor's leadership on the front lines of battle, I think it would make it a hell of a lot easier. Uh, to keep the well, movement. One thing that can help to get labor's leadership on the front line is more democracy in our organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, one member, one vote is certainly uh, one look at that, but uh, that's not the only approach. But we definitely need more democratic accountability from the members to the leaders. Mm -hmm. And speaking of democracy, uh, certainly uh, Congress and our state legislatures. Uh, certainly play a role in that because oftentimes I know here in Missouri we see uh, our state actually uh, creating obstacles for labor, you know, and uh, certainly uh, we need to work on that too. Any comments there, Pete? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be do a clear-minded assessment of the Biden administration on the labor question. Uh, they've been very, very good. The National Labor Relations Board has a general counsel who lights out in terms of some uh, uh, rulings she's made and the board rulings in general. Uh, Biden walking a picket line, unprecedented yep. for an American president to do that. And talking union. Uh, Roosevelt was reported to have said, uh, I want you to join a union. He never did. John L. Lewis met with him and he said, I'd like to see workers in unions and Lewis ran off and started saying that and he pissed off the president, but this president has come out and said it. And he's been, uh, he's been good for labor. We can criticize him on some of his other stands, but he's been excellent for labor. And we need that kind of stance to continue our mojo here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, certainly one big factor in my opinion uh, has been that the wolf is actually at the door, guys. I think we can all agree that uh, this this division across America is certainly uh, 
taking some pretty ominous sorts of forms. And unless there's uh, some fight back, man, we might be victimized by this fascist wolf. And uh, that certainly should alarm everybody. Ran any comments there? Uh, well, I think you spelled it out pretty well, Michael. Um, yeah, we have to be very concerned about uh, the prospect of uh, a different administration with an agenda that uh, might sound appealing, has a certain populist tone, uh, there's, you know, a, a, but a place towards uh, the anger that uh, people feel about their dissatisfactions, but is, is fundamentally anti-democratic and uh, it is certainly not pro-working class or pro-labor. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, you, we are seeing, though, you know, uh, some changes in a few uh, Republicans where they're they're starting to recognize that they need to be pro working class if they're going to be uh, elected, and um, so that's kind of an interesting development. Um, I think they're phony as a three dollar bill, but uh, you are seeing some of some of these. Uh, uh, representatives starting to pander to, to labor. Hey, all we need to do is look at during the UAW strike, ex-president Trump went to Detroit to hold a rally. Where did he hold the rally? He hold the rally at the behest of a non-union manufacturer, a parts manufacturer. And Sean Fain was very clear that this guy is a phony. He talks about workers, but his whole agenda is anti-worker. That's a very refreshing tone for a major union leader to take, yep. that kind of bold denunciation of Trump. Yeah. Well, you know, and it actually, I think it's it's stimulating uh, or, or opening the door, making it easy for other labor leaders to do the same. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. I know there's a tremendous talk about Amazon and organizing Amazon and We've made some inroads. Certainly, we got a long way to go, but uh, man, it's it's happening. Yeah. So, uh, what could you guys recommend uh, that our listeners could do to to aid and abet this movement moment? Uh, we'd certainly like to get all the support we can in terms of solidarity, and uh, they're just little things that make a difference. Any ideas there, uh, Pete, Brian? Young progressive folks to uh, abandon the frozen Northeast and head south and work in auto plants and help the UAW organize. I like that one. We call that industrial salting. That was the way a lot of our great CIO unions were built by those kind of forces. So young people that really are committed to the labor mission can play a huge role in the kind of organizing we need to be doing. Yeah, I like that one. Anything to add there, Rand? Sure. I mean, not every listener tonight is uh, going to have the capability or opportunity to go get a job in an, an, a not yet union auto plant. But <clears throat> people can begin to talk union more aggressively with their family, friends, with their coworkers. Um, <clears throat> And to, to, you know, people make their decisions about these kinds of things based on the conversations that they have with their, their friends and family more mm -hmm. than anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, we're bombarded with emails and advertising and images all the time. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's, it's what, you've, what you're doing with your family and friends, what you're hearing from your neighbors in your community. So just, you know, the worker to worker, member to member conversations need to need to be stepped up, need to increase. Yeah. And uh, let's talk union more aggressively. Let's uh, reach out to people and, and ask them, you know, hey, you're complaining about your job. You know, have you thought about starting to form a union? Mm -hmm. Well, all right, guys, we're about down at the end of our our time limits. So I want to thank both of you for coming out to the Heartland Labor Forum, sharing your 
insight and viewpoints uh, with our listening audience. And uh, I'm ready for a movement moment, man. I'm ready to, to see the 30s revisited, man, in terms of building labor. And I've been ready for a long time. So thanks, guys, for being on. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure, Michael. Thank you, Judy. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Take care. There's room here for another if you've got no place. Come here into the night where I can see your face. The cops leave us alone here in back of Murphy's body shop. When the weather gets this bad, the old man leaves one car unlocked. Well, they really gave you quite a cut Here, this should wipe it clean Some days, you know, it seems As though the whole damn world's gone mean I know this ain't the Hilton But the back seat here is free I can see just where you've been, my friend And you're safe in My name is William Sanders, but my friends all call me Bo. I was born right here in Gary, 37 years ago. The sky was full of smoking jobs as far as... Hi, and this is Judy Ansel, and that was Joe Jenks you just heard. And my guest tonight is Eleni Shermer. She's a writer, educator, and organizer with writings that have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Nation, and Boston Review, and elsewhere. She works as a postdoc at Concordia University Social Justice Center and a research associate with the Future of Finance Initiative at UCLA's Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy. She also organizes with the Debt Collective. She researches and teaches about topics related to the political economy and ed- of education, labor, and the sociology and history of education in the United States. She's earned a PhD in educational policy studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2021. She currently lives in Montreal, Quebec. Most recently, she published the article called How Jane McAlevey Transformed the Labor Movement in the New Yorker October 27th. I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting article. And welcome to the show, Eleni. You'll have to unmute yourself. Thanks. There. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Oh, great it's to great here. to have you. Thanks. Um, so <clears throat> you start out uh, your article about Jane talking about what her contribution, main contributions, I think, are to the labor movement in her concept of whole working worker organizing. Um, and a couple examples of that kind of organizing that you give in the article have to do with b- affordable housing and also getting support from the faith community. And I think most workers would ask, what does that have to do with unions? Could you talk about that concept? Yeah, so the whole worker organizing is basically a recognition of the plain truth that people are still people when they leave their job. And there's plenty of issues that impact workers uh, on and off the job. If you're paying hundreds of dollars a month for to a private equity company just to live in a crappy one-room apartment uh, and are threatened with eviction, that's... Uh, that's an issue that unions could and should bear. That that affects a worker's quality of life, and the the narrowing of unions' vision to just sort of wages and benefits issues on the shop floor. McAlevey says is is sort of um, surrendering a lot of the power and the vision of unions to address all of the issues that potentially face workers' lives. Okay, so she advises organizers before they even start organizing um, to do what's called a power structure analysis with uh, in their communities. And it asks who has the power to change an issue. Um, what I always tell workers is who can give you what you want, uh, what you're aiming for. 
And it's not always mm -hmm. the, the people who are the obvious targets. Um, right. And then what power workers have to influence those actors. I remember asking her once if she could write a guide to how to do a power structure analysis. I don't think she's ever done that, and I wish I wish she has the t would have the time to do that. Um, but you want to talk some about the importance of power structure analysis and and how? Yeah, she it's sees it's it. actually it's the it's the project that she's working on now. But I think one of the things that's really unique and revelatory about Jane's concept of a power structure analysis is that it's you know a lot of the sort of traditional strategy for power structure analysis that most unions or progressive groups do groups do is to figure out the power that's held by the opponent who has the power to make the change um, how can they be influenced etc and what Jane's power strat power structure analysis does is it actually does the other side too who what's the power in the room what's the power in the community who has connections to you know influential people who is part of a soccer league that actually could really turn out a lot of people so so she brings in both sides of the equation not just the the opponents but also the the organ the the people who are doing the organizing themselves and i think that's really kind of a profound shift yeah i i remember in her first book uh, when she was working in in new england um she asked people what churches they belong to and mm -hmm. did a whole in inventory, essentially, of all the right. organizations people belong to, even down to the bowling leagues, I think. That's right, uh, because, that's right, exactly. Because in those organizations, you know, you find out who people know and who's connected to who, and all of the with different paths to influence that workers actually right. have. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's and, exactly uh, right. And she, and then, you know, in that book, she writes about this too, is that, you know, the the, the effort was so successful that eventually some of the the bargaining sessions started happening not in the employer's you know conference room but in a church basement and the mm -hmm. people who were mediating the bargainings were very respected preachers uh, in the area who were like you know wanted to bear witness to these workers need for a for a contract right and and you know one of the things Jane's famous for is bringing sometimes several hundred people to the bargaining table, uh, people yeah. who represent the community, work, workers, and, and so on and so forth, to actually leverage power right there at the table. Right. Yeah. Um, her first yeah. book, by the way, is called Raising Expectations. It's my favorite of her books, um, it beca maybe because it's more like a memoir and has so many adventures yeah. in it. Uh, but right. one of the things yeah. she does is she leads workers through a series of escalating actions from, you know, a simple thing of attending a meeting uh, to wearing a button uh, to uh, joining a walkout or a strike. And she calls all of these things structure tests. What does that mean? Well, a structure test, it's, it's basically a, just an a informa a information diagnostic, I, I suppose, to figure out where organizing has, is strong and where, and this is probably the most important part, where it's weak. Um, so places, you know, you're, you're want to figure, you want to ask people to wear a button to work and you notice that nobody at one school seems to have joined in that action. Well, that's a really good sign that there needs to be some real attention. What's going on on uh, that unit or that school that there's not people participating. And so those structure tests are used to design and, and calibrate the next round of organizing to figure out, okay, where do we have to build up? It's a bit like going to the gym and trying to do a push-up or something and falling flat on your face and realizing, like, I got to work on my upper body strength. Okay, and then you go do that. Something along those. Jane's Jane's a real, a real jock. Uh, so you can see that a lot of her philosophy is definitely has a a lot of athletic metaphor to it. Hmm. Interesting. I know this is not the first article you've written about Jane. You wrote one back in 2021 as well, I believe. Um, yeah. How'd you meet her, and why do you think she's so important? I read her books. I, I read her books um, probably in 2015 or 2016. I can't remember exactly when No Shortcuts came out. Um, but I read it as a, as a grad student and a president of my grad union at, at University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
um, and had just, you know, we had the public sector unions in Wisconsin just got the crap beat out of us. Right, and Act 10. Yes, exactly. And it was a pretty dark period, and reading that, reading Jane's work was very illuminating because it reminded me how much power we had that we hadn't prob properly exercised. Oh, so um, she was kind so of an was, antidote to Scott Walker, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, if we had been organizing in a different way, maybe we still would have lost, but we maybe could have lost with a little bit stronger footing to be positioned to, to fight another round. I mean, it's it's been a decade. Just the first lawsuit this week just pa just challenged the, the legality of Act 10, but it's been more than a decade of the lights out for labor in Wisconsin. Yeah, well, but given our previous discussion about whether this is labor, labor is going to sustain <laughs> its movement moment, you know, I, I look back at 2011 and Act 10 and, and the incredible resistance you guys did put up in Wisconsin. And I think that was really the beginning of the new labor movement in this country, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah. so even, even yeah. though it was a defeat, it yeah. really, I think, educated a lot of people and taught people how to I, fight back. I really agree. You know, I, in my mind, it was the the whole kind of chronology of the that the period of uprising from the 2010s it was the arab spring mm -hmm. in the february of 2011 or january of 2011 and then it was the wisconsin uprising right. and then that occupy. fall was occupy and right. the following years was the chicago teachers strike but in my mind the the wisconsin uprising played a very important part of that 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 kind of the grammar of unrest that took over um so I agree, it was, I, I'm with you, it was important. That's great. So <clears throat> how much influence do you think Jane has had on the labor movement? I mean, you, you say that she's really had tremendous influence in, in your article, after all. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you title it uh, that she's transformed the labor movement. How do you think yeah. that's true? Well, I think, you know, she's, she plays an interesting role because she's both has worked leading unions, coaching unions, consulting unions, doing in the last, you know, decade, she mostly works as a union educator. Um, but she also has this role of being a writer and a scholar. And so she's kind of doing this, this sort of leading movements and then rushing back to her desk to write about what happened and mm -hmm. then going back out and, and working with all these unions and then rushing back to her desk to write about what happened. And so She's just, she's really got her finger on the pulse of a lot of activity. So I think there's just, she just has a sense of, of urgency. But I think the most important thing is she really fundamentally believes that, that we will not win unless people are organized to demand that we win. And I think that's so, you know, it's not, there's a, there's a quote that Marshall get in from in the article that, that the scholar and Organizer. Uh, organizer Marshall Gann says where he, he talks about Jane and him belonging to the same church that people are not props and they're not resources. They're actually agentic people. And and in fact, the, the victory doesn't happen without there. It's not in it's it's not until people are brought into formation that there's we're going to have any kind of widespread victory. So I think that's just been a really, you know, there's, she's just, she's really changed the set of ideas of how unions can work of being these high participation, militant, progressive things, not sort of stale, you know, male pale and stale, mm -hmm. uh, or cutting backroom deals or sort of a kind of bureaucratic and a little bit behind the times. She's, she really has a vision of unions that are you know, fighting some of the most important social movements of of our time. That's true. So yeah. um, before we go on, let's mention what Jane's books are, because I hope we're prompting people to actually want to read some of her books. So you yeah. Want to <laughs> yeah. Well, so her her first book is is Raising Expectations, which is her memoir. Um, her second book is basically the her dissertation republished, uh, and it's called No Shortcuts. And that book was, I think, really what kind of took Jane up to the next level. It was a DSA reading book. It was read by teachers in the lead up to the Red for Ed strikes. It was sort of um, offered a blueprint and, and very kind of clear 
strategy and analysis of, of how what she means by her organizing method. Mm-hmm. Um, then her third book was a book called A Collective Bargain, which was a little bit of a shift. Um, yeah, That was for a trade press, and it was essentially making the case of why unions are important for democracy. And it was, it was, it was kind of to, to bring the mass appeal of, of to, to sort of bring unions to a mass audience, I think, is how I read that book. Um, yeah, it was much less of a how-to book than the first two. Right, much less of a how-to book and more just like, why do we have unions and why are they good? Yeah. Um, with some good history and some good case studies and definitely a lot of Jane's voice, but a little bit less gritty. Uh, her other books really kind of, she rolls up her sleeves. Um, and then the book that she just published earlier this year is called Rules to Win By, and that's uh case studies and theory and kind of a manual for how to lead and uh engage in these high participation bargaining sessions so you know sitting bringing 200 workers to to a contract negotiation meeting for example how you actually go about building for that and making that work and why it matters um and she's at work on a on a fifth book, which she may or may not be able to finish, um, but that is actually like digging into this power structure analysis, what she means by it, how it would happen, how it happens. And and she's working pretty closely with um, a few union drives to as the kind of data, I guess, if you will, for for what that looks like. Yeah. And the reason why we don't have Jane on now is, is because what? Uh, well, she's very busy, uh, for and, one thing, yeah. and she's also um, in poor health. She's has a terminal cancer diagnosis, uh, multiple high risk, multiple myeloma, um, and is dying. Uh, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, I really appreciate your writing about her. We're talking to Eleni Shermer, who is a labor reporter, among other things. And I want to ask you about that. First off, uh, my friend Chris Garlock of the Labor Heritage Foundation and a labor radio host himself asked me to ask you about your thoughts on organizing arts and culture workers. Um, he said that Jane McAlevey informally advised the New Yorker, which you write for, although you're probably not an employee, uh, she advised them during their negotiations. So. Uh, you know, there's some overlap there, but uh, I would assume you'd, you'd also be in favor of, yeah, writers organizing, or are you in a Oh, member? yeah, goodness, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in a member of, a, like, the, the Writers Guild and the Freelance Solidarity Project, um, but golly, I wish, I wish it was, <laughs> I wish there was more. I wish, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot more work to be done for organizing writers and freelance workers of all kinds, just like there's a lot more work to be done to organize all kinds of sort of gig workers, uh, whether it's writers for the New Yorker or Uber drivers in uh, Kansas City, you know. Um, You're a gig worker, essentially, right? That's basically, I think, what what freelance workers are, yeah. You know, we kind of take these gigs. So you write a lot about labor. Is it hard to get labor studies, labor articles placed in in journals? Um, Well, lately, there's just been such great, there's such great stuff happening you know mm-hmm. it's hard to it's hard to place stories when there's not a story but labor um has really been you know making a lot of good noise and good trouble in the last few years so i think i you, you, my beat is shifting a little bit but i think i think there's actually been a lot of the gro- labor journalism has actually been much stronger now than it has been at any point in the last decade there's uh-huh. just a lot more coverage of it. What interests you most <laughs> in covering labor stories? Yeah, or yeah, labor stories. I think it's a really fascinating thing when people decide that they to make they they when people make the choice that they would prefer to use that, that when they realize they have agency to change the circumstances in their life that suck. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's like such a powerful story. And I think trying to figure out how that happens and the dilemmas that that causes, you know, there's, it's, it's not automatic that people just are like, my job sucks. So I'm going to make, take all my evenings for the next, you know, three years to go to 
committee meetings and join this part of the union and that part of the union. But people make the wrestle with these choices in all kinds of ways. And I think that's interesting and really hopeful because it's 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 ultimately it's all those people making those choices that make any kind of labor victory or movement victory happen. Well, I'll certainly look forward to reading those stories and uh, <laughs> and and follow you. And Thank I hope you. you let us know you. when you have a Thank story you. you'd like to talk about. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I sure will. Yeah. Thank you so Great much, Eleni Schirmer. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, for yes. being in the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Now working in this mill is dirty and dangerous, and I'm taking risks anyway. But when I have the time and the proper equipment, I can do my job safely each day. Everybody tells me that they're sticklers for safety. I'm not here to say that they lie. I'm saying we just come to work here. We don't come to die. Hello, this is Mary Ario for Safety First. First, University of Missouri launches Work Zone Safety Center from www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com for November 6th. Amid one of the most ambitious road construction efforts in state history, the University of Missouri has established a center aimed at preventing fatalities and serious injuries in work zones. The Missouri Work Zone Safety Center of Excellence will lead research and outreach in developing behavioral, educational, engineering, and technological solutions to protect workers involved in the Improve I-70 project which is expected to take up to five years. Missouri I-70 stretches more than 240 miles from St. Louis to Kansas City. I-70 is such a big project, Praveen Adara, interim dean of the Mizzou College of Engineering and founding director of the Center told Safety and Health, this is a once-in-a-lifetime large infrastructure project. We plan to look at a suite of things, starting from the portable rumble strips, for example, as you approach a work zone, he said. That's low tech. On the other end of the spectrum, we're also testing new technologies to alert drivers. For example, an early detection and warning system would involve cameras and monitoring traffic and sending real-time data on a vehicle's speed and angle of approach, among other details. Meanwhile, Missouri workers will benefit from enhanced training technologies such as virtual augmented reality for flaggers to learn how they must communicate before arriving at a work site. The end goal is for everyone at the table the same. We don't want any fatalities in the work zone period. Next, the world's worst industrial disaster harmed people even before they were born from www.mpr.org slash section slash goats and soda for November 22nd. Shortly after midnight on December 3, 1984, 39 years ago, about 40 tons of deadly gas leaked out of a pesticide factory in the central Indian city of Bhopal. The highly toxic methyl isocyanate, MIC, used as an intermediary chemical for making pesticides, drifted across the city exposing nearly half a million residents. Thousands of people died over the next several days, and it's estimated that many thousands more have died from related health issues since. Survivors who are alive today still struggle with a range of debilitating chronic health issues, from cancer to lung disorders to neurological damage. Now, a new study shows that the accident, often considered the worst industrial disaster in history, affected not just those who were exposed to the gas that night, but also the generations of babies born to women pregnant at that time. In fact, men born in Bhopal in 1985 have a higher risk of cancer, lower education accomplishment, and higher rates of disabilities compared with those born before or after 1985. The results inform an ongoing discussion about what is owed to future generations affected by the disaster. For more background information, see the Confined Space newsletter at jordanbarab.com for December 3rd. Finally, CPWR publishes tip sheets on preventing roofer falls from www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com for November 6th. Two new resources from CPWR, the Center for Construction Research and Training, are intended to help to prevent falls among roofing workers. In Roofing Safety for Construction Workers, available in English and Spanish, CPWR cites Bureau of Labor Statistics data showing one out of every 10 fatal slips, trips, and falls involve roofers three out of five of whom are Hispanic. The organization calls on employers to eliminate or minimize fall hazards during job planning, provide workers with proper tools and safety equipment, 
train workers on inspection and use of safety equipment in a language they understand, enforce safety regulations, and regularly review work practices that help prevent falls. An additional CPWR fact sheet, Roof Safety, Weather to Work, provides guidance on working safely in inclement weather. Tips include, ensure workers are trained on fall protection and wearing proper personal protective equipment, monitor weather conditions before work and throughout the day, inspect the roof for ice, wet or slippery conditions before work starts, have a plan to provide workers with cover from lightning, find a stable non-slippery surface to set up and secure a ladder. Find the links in the Safety and Health Magazine article. This is Mary Ario for Safety First. And no calendar tonight, but an announcement. The American Postal Workers Union is having a Toys for Tots drive. And if you have toys to new toys to donate, you can drop them off at the APWU Local 27 office at 3824 East 16th Street in Kansas City. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. Our show is called Chad Pearson Capital. It's a book by Chad Pearson, Capitalists, Ta Capitals, Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers. And from the prison guard, from prison guard to union, President Lynn Fields is making prisons safer for all. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned for Next Step Forward with Jasmine Jones. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be. No one can deny that you could